Welcome to Rants and Reason. I am Chuck. I am Karen. I used to be a Democrat. I used to be a Republican. I am still a liberal. I'm still a conservative, but other than that, we're not really sure what we are. But we do know this, as Abraham Lincoln reminds us, we are not enemies. We are friends. We are friends. How are you doing, Karen? I am doing okay, Chuck. How are you? I'm doing good. We're going to talk about some midterms here. Right. We're going to talk about what everybody else is talking about. But right. and we're then we're going to give our di- predictions. We're going to we're going to do it in a different way. So. Right. Now, we've heard so many rants and commentary about how this is one of the most important and contentious midterms ever. So we wanted to find a reason. The truth behind the rants, so to speak, Karen. Mm-hmm. So is it? Is this a midterm of epic proportions, Karen? And what does history have to say about it? Well, we do know that the founding feud of the United States between the advocates of limited and less limited government kind of started to fade in the whole, you know, era of good feelings, which was from 1815 to 1825. But honestly, that fading was pretty much an illusion because really party spirit it was just reorganizing the federalist party had collapsed and the democratic republican party was starting to splinter so adams he took the white house in 1824 as a national republican but he took the seat amidst controversy of a whole backroom corrupt bargain with henry clay and actually there's been no definitive evidence that supports that claim at all like there's no historical refer- that evidence that any of that really truly happened but just like today just claims of corruption ruined everything. So in 1826, his party ended up losing both houses of Congress. It really, a lot of scholars point to the whole cloud of controversy surrounding Adams as the cause for this loss. So hmm. an, another really interesting thing about this election is that uh, academic evidence supports the fact that it was this election that was the first to indicate that candidates were being like punished at the polls um that their voting records they were being punished based on their voting records so Mm. in 1828 the new democratic party which was organized under the energies of martin van buren ran adam's enemy who was andrew jackson for president and this kind of ushered in a whole new era wouldn't it be cool if we could actually punish them at the polls? Like you, the way you would vote is you would have like, I don't know, Paul Ryan and or say Mitch McConnell and Elizabeth Warren. Right. And then you could just walk up and whoever, if you were going to vote for the Democrat, you just whack McConnell on the side of the head. If you're going to vote for the Republicans, you whack Warren on the side of the head. Well, see, punish I, them at the polls. I. I don't think whacking people in the head is... I was thinking more like pie in the face, but whacking in the head seems a little much. But anyway... Well, I'm not talking about like hitting them with a fist or anything. Just a little whack as you walk. You know how you do with your kids? Hey, (laughs) dummy, cut that out. I I don't do that. Punish them at the polls, I say. Punish them at the polls. Well, let's jump ahead to 1858. Karen and... 
there's a recession, and the nation's bitterly divided over slavery. And James Buchanan lectured the people on the virtue of thrift and backed kind of a dubious pro-slavery constitution for the nascent state Ooh. of Kansas. Nice. You didn't. You did not think I was going to nail that word, did you? I'm, I'm impressed. When you wrote this. <laughs> well, anyway, there's an outpouring of violence before this election, and it included, but was not limited to, that sounds like a warranty, the brutal <laughs> beating of passionately anti-slavery Senator Charles Sumner. And this was perpetrated <laughs> by a cane-wielding Preston Brooks. Who just beat him down on the Senate floor with a cane. Right, and he was another See, representative, right? A pro-slavery representative. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he just beat him with a cane. Beat him so bad, almost killed him. Right. And then, of course, you had the radical abolitionist John Brown. He attacked a pro-slavery settlement in Kansas, and he murdered seven men. So now, is the Democrats splintered? Huh. That doesn't sound familiar. <laughs> the Republican Party, founded four years before to prevent the expansion of slavery, took a plurality in the House of Representatives. Many Southerners said they would secede if a Republican was ever elected president. After Abraham Lincoln won in 1860, they seceded, but they did. They could secede, but they did not succeed. Karen. Oh, nice. Nice. See what I did there? I do. I do. I'm impressed. So now we're at 1874. So two years after President Ulysses S. Grant, who was a Republican, was reelected, White House scandals, um, a financial panic, and a lot of concern over post-Civil War governance in southern states ended up costing Republicans 96 seats and their majority in the House, which they had controlled since 1858. This particular election had just a ton of just really tragic violence. The year before, there was one of the worst single episodes of violence, and this was the Colfax Massacre of 1873. It happened in the wake of a contested 1872 election for governor of Louisiana and local offices. A group of white Democrats armed with rifles and a small cannon overpowered Republican freedmen and state militia, who were also black, that were occupying the Grant Parish Courthouse in Colfax. Most of the freedmen were killed after they surrendered. After they surrendered. How disgusting is that? Nearly 50 were killed later that night after being held as prisoners for several hours. Estimates of the number of dead, um, they vary. Some say 62. It goes all the way up to 153. There are were three white men that died, but the number of black victims it was difficult to ascertain because, um, sadly, the bodies had been thrown into the river or removed for burial. So there were actually rumors of mass graves at the site. We're not seeing things like that today. No, <laughs> no. And it's important to note that at this time, I mean, everything about the parties that we know now was irrelevant like right. everything changed in modern times between the republicans and the democrats so when we talk right. about republicans right. or democrats it was a different world back then so it's important to remember that 
So closer to the election, there was another tragic altercation. And this one was outside of a polling station. And it was between a black Republican whose name was Milas Lawrence and a white Democrat whose name was Charles E. Goodwin. This turned into a massacre after Lawrence was stabbed um, by Goodwin's friend, William Dowdy. So there were a bunch of white militiamen, uh, unofficial militiamen, that were all prepared for conflict. And they started firing an estimated 500 shots into the mass of unarmed men on the street. When the dust had settled, 75 men were found wounded and there were seven dead. And these were all unarmed black men. Yes, they were. More life was lost later that night um, in a town that was pretty close called Spring Hills. And Democrat intruders broke into the house of Republican city court judge Elias Hills and opened fire. And this killed his 16-year-old son, Willie. That all of that was so, so incredibly tragic. It overshadowed the still disturbing incidences of, of... large-scale destruction of ballot boxes, theft, and burning of a whole bunch of ballots that had been cast, and keeping just thousands of black men from the polls. So, I mean, this was just a horrible, horrible time. When disputed electoral votes cast the results of the 1876 presidential election into doubt, Congressional Democrats were strong enough to force a compromise, and Rutherford B. Hayes, he entered the White House, and federal troops left the South, and this basically effectively ended Reconstruction. Right. Well, let's jump ahead a little bit to 1894. In 1984, I'm sorry. In 1884, Grover Cleveland became the first Democrat since Buchanan. And in 1892, he was the only president to win non-consecutive terms. But his second administration had a severe depression. Remember, there was no Prozac at this time, Karen. (laughs) There was a railroad strike. They they did have medicine laced with a ton of cocaine, though. (laughs) They did, yeah. There was that. (laughs) Yeah, we did that series. They had all kinds of really good medicine that you could buy right over the counter. Yeah. But anyway... Cleveland had this had the economy was in a severe depression. There was a railroad strike. You had an army. You had an army of jobless workers demonstrating in Washington for some kind of relief. And oftentimes they used used violence to get that relief or to make their point. In the 1894 midterms, the Democrats lost 116 seats in the House. The biggest wipeout on record, and they lost five in the Senate. Now, the results weaken the party everywhere but in the Deep South, and they prepare the ground for the election of Republicans McKinley and Roosevelt to the White House. Fast forwarding to 1910. So in 1908, President Theodore Roosevelt, who was a Republican, sort of, picked William H. Taft as his successor, and then he just left for Africa. <laughs> so, Well, his term was up. Yeah, was it like, was. He's like, done. see ya, I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> so Taft kind of alienated everything that his predecessor was about, and he, he was just generally ill-suited to kind of navigate all the political waters at that time. Things were very complex, and he just wasn't good at dealing with that. 
in Congress, there was a split between old guard Republicans and um, progressive Republicans. And this debate was getting just really heated. And as the year wore on, there were an alliance of Democrats and the progressive Republicans in the House, and they ended up revolting. Taft didn't like this um, at all. And he responded to this assertion of the progressives by attempting to just get rid of them. He just tried to get them out of the party. And his attempts to have them defeated in the party primaries of 1910 were basically unsuccessful. Instead, a slew of the old guard incumbents went down to defeat. And for their part, Democrats were actually unusually, prior to this time, they had not been, they were unusually united for this particular midterm. And that's something that we're seeing again today, is that if you don't get in line, if you don't fall in line mm -hmm. as a Republican... You you will get primaried. Right. That's I remember when uh, in one of the interviews that Trump gave, he actually said there were several different Republicans that he wanted to actively campaign against because they didn't like him. One and happens it to be a senator that I am quite fond of. So um, I he has not decided to take on Sass. He he's threatened not, to. He's talked. He threatened to, and some somebody must have whispered in his ear. I'm just. That's not a battle you want to take. Right. On. I'm just saying, if a whole bunch of like claims and something horrible comes out about SASS, I'm going to go full conspiracy theory, and I really believe that that they're trying to manufacture some dirt against him already because I think he's definitely a political threat. So. Well, anyway. I think Sass is positioning himself to possibly primary run in the primaries in right. 2020. Right. And I think that he is a person the Republicans are afraid of. Well, that's right. me personally, because he he's very popular in Nebraska. Mm -hmm. You're not going to get him out and you can say anything you want. But he, he is a he's a very strong advocate for the people of Nebraska. And he's not he, he's much more a advocate for the people of Nebraska than he is an advocate for the Republican Party. Right. Or the president mm -hmm. or the president. Yes. People in Nebraska know that. Right. And so you're going to have a hard time with them. Right. But anyway, we jumped off topic because you had to talk about Ben. I so actually anyway, didn't let's... mention him. You just knew who I was referring to. But right. Anyway, go ahead. I, well, it's the way your voice changed. Like, <laughs> oh, there's a senator. <laughs> anyway, let's jump ahead to 1930, Karen. Now, again, we have another depressed time and no Prozac. We right. just have or opium laced drinks. Well, we or don't even yeah. have that anymore. Yeah, because yeah. they got rid of it. And yeah, like prohibition got stuff, rid yeah. of all the alcohol. I mean, these people were in bad shape. <laughs> yeah. So now the year before that was the uh, Wall Street crash that began the Great Depression. There was a huge spike in organized crime, and that was sensationalized by the Valentine's Day massacre. You also have veterans protesting and a really bad flu season, Karen. Yeah. And in 1938, President Herbert Hoover signed the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Bill. Because what you want to do when your economy is really bad <sighs> right. is to impose a bunch of tariffs. <laughs> yeah. And that oddly made the economy infinitely worse. 
Now, Hoover told the American Bankers Association that the income of a large part of our people is not reduced by the Depression, but it's affected by fear and pessimism. You know, fear and pessimism causes a lot of things. It don't cause you to be broke, though. <laughs> right. Not having a job causes you to be broke. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so now the next month, his perceived or real inaction on behalf of the <laughs> unemployed right. cost the Republicans 49 House seats and eight Senate seats. And this reduced their margins to just two and one, respectively. Now, with party loyalties in play here. Democrats began assembling a formerly kind of pretty disparate lot of, well, I don't know what you call them. I, people that normally would not be in one group, one block. They got farmers, labor unionists, southern whites, and racial minorities into one block. And Roosevelt pulled them all, came into the White House, pulled them all together. These people were called the New Deal Coalition after FDR's economic program. And this block dominated American politics for decades. And it's really... I mean, forever. Right. And it's really... Well, still, even today, if you look at certain parts of that voting block, those are the ones that people never really know what they're going to do in a lot of the swing states. Um, polls, they're the ones that, to this day, drive pollsters crazy. The Reagan Democrats showed up from that. I mean... Mm -hmm. that, even today, that voter block is still very, very, very um, unpredictable. That's the word I was looking for. Well, then we have uh, 1946. And in 1946, President Harry Truman was in serious trouble. Chuck, Chuck, have I ever told you that I was born in the same hospital that Harry Truman died in? Really? <laughs> because, I, you know, our listeners could probably go back to... Eight or nine podcasts that you have mentioned that in. <laughs> I just, it's my, yeah, just thought I would mention that again. So having assumed the presidency back in uh, April of 1945 after the death of Franklin D. Roosevelt, um, you know, Truman had some pretty large shoes to fill. Really? <laughs> I, I just. Really? I, uh, inflation was rising. Labor unrest was starting to really scare a lot of people. Um, there were a lot of wartime economic controls that were remaining in place. And there was starting to be a little bit of tension with Joseph Stalin. So after 14 years of unified democratic control of government, voters, they were pretty ready for a change. So the Republicans ended up walking away from the 1946 midterms with gains of 56 seats in the House and 13 in the Senate, and majorities in both houses for the first time since 1928. But this proved to not necessarily be so great, because inaction on Truman's legislative agenda gave him an opening to run against the, the whole uh, termed do-nothing Congress, which he did in 1948. And that won him the Democratic nomination and then his own term as president. Well, so let's jump ahead to 1966, a very troubled time. Now, he's looking to win his first real presidential election. Who, Karen? President Lyndon, Lyndon B. Johnson. Johnson. That's right. And he, he just destroyed Goldwater in the election. Mm -hmm. 
Johnson got 60% of the popular vote, 90% of the electoral vote. And Johnson, it was a landslide. Would you would you say it was a big landslide, Chuck? It was a big Democrat Democratic gain, Karen. It, it was big gain. It was big. It was big large. League. It was like a jumbo sized gain, correct? It was it was huge. <laughs> okay, just wanted to. Mm-hmm. So with Johnson came a flood of liberal legislation flowing from Washington. And this persuaded many observers that the Republican Party was nearly defunct. At best, they reasoned, grow up, Karen. At best, they reasoned it would take years for the GOP to get itself back together again and regain relevance in the American system. They were wrong, Karen. Mm -hmm. Now, a number of events took a toll on Johnson's popularity by late 66, including a lack of success in Vietnam. And his personality. His personality, (laughs) yeah. Race riots, civil disturbances here at home, and really an increasing sense that the great society was just running amok, spending too much money, and centralizing too much of the government. Right, A lot of bureaucracy was created at that time also, so... Yes, it was. The Democrats lost 47 seats in the House, three in the Senate. That was the end of the the New Deal coalition. And it ended up organizing a block of voters that ended up putting Richard Nixon in the White House. Now, subsequently, Karen, there's a little bit of trivia for you. It was this midterm that Reagan was a surprise winner of the California governor's race. Marking the beginning of his life in politics. Mm-hmm. Well, in 1994, we have Bill Clinton, and it was his election to the presidency in 1992 that kind of started a whole ongoing rightward shift in American politics. So Clinton garnered just 43% of the popular vote. No. Think about that, right. Karen. It's kind of interesting. We talk. I mean, we do talk about you know people criticize, not criticize, but the left Democrats. They constantly harp on the fact that Trump did not win the popular vote, right? And with Bush and Gore, mm-hmm. it was all the time. You know, you didn't even win the popular vote, right? Think about that. Clinton got less than both of them, right? It's Far kinda, less than both. Yeah, of them. it's very interesting. He, because you had Ross Perot. Ross Perot and, and his pie charts. That's one of the first yes. things I remember. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's pretty, pretty. But I mean, he only got 43% of the vote. Right. So. Yeah. You know, that's. Well, because of that, during his first two years in office, he really struggled with conservative factions in both the Republican side and the Democratic side. So the whole atmosphere ended up contributing to just a very narrow passage of the fiscal year 94 budget, which, despite being stripped of major stimulus and public investment programs, got like no Republican support and was also opposed by a whole bunch of Democrats and you combine that with the administration's failed efforts to reform the American health care system and the difficulty of a slow recovery from the 1990-91 recession. So it, things weren't going very well for him. Um, no. And that health care system, mm-hmm. that was Hillary's. And people hated that. Remember Hillary Care? Mm-hmm. Right. 
Right. Although the U.S. GDP started to rise by the time Clinton was sworn in. Yeah, unemployment was still pretty high. And that's when a lot of inequality really began to grow. So uh, just a lot of general discontent with the state of the nation's economy really fed into Republican attacks, which started kind of ramping up on talk radio at that time. That's when Rush Limbaugh just started kind of growing in popularity. Um, And then the Republicans started attacking on the social and cultural aspect of things, kind of creating the whole culture war. So when you combine all that with large campaign contributions from businesses, all of this was just not a good mix. Um, And in... 94, the American electorate handed the Republican Party its greatest victory since 1980. The Democrats ended up losing 53 House seats and seven Senate seats. And this was considered by a lot of commentators a bloodbath. Pundits from this particular election really noticed how Washington was getting increasingly um, split by party. They, they really noted the partisanship and they advised Clinton to kind of stick more to the center. And he took the advice to heart and this helped him win re-election in 96. Now let's jump to 2002. And I remember this very well. I was actually, if I'm doing the math, I was your, the age that you are now mm-hmm. in 2002. Okay. That's how old I am. <laughs> So how about you defer to me out of respect once in a while? But anyway, historically, the party of a sitting president, they're going to lose ground in midterms. But in the aftermath of the 9-11 terror attacks, Republicans countered that trend and they gained six seats in the House and two in the Senate with the help of aggressive campaigning by George W. Bush. And I'm going to add this because I remember it very well because I thought it was ridiculous and I couldn't believe people were buying it. He sold himself as a wartime president and basically said, this is not the time to change. Don't change midstream, you know, and they played on people's fears. That's really what happened during that one. I I can just remember so many times, you know, we have to stay the course. Right. It was a very prevention oriented message. Mm -hmm. Yes. So this was the second time a president's party gained house seats in the first midterm election. Now, the first was a Democrat's gain of nine seats in 1934 under Roosevelt. Now, Bush, who took office in 2001 due to a very controversial Supreme Court decision, had majorities in both chambers. Now, the Senate was split 50-50. This left Dick Cheney with a tie-breaking vote. And as we know, since corporations can be people... (laughs) People without hearts and souls and everything else are people, too. So Cheney could vote. And Cheney really was really all about homeland security initiatives and the global war on terror. You know, Bush and Cheney, but Cheney and Wolfowitz and those guys, they they really pushed that. You know, that was another one of those things. If you don't elect us, you're not going to be safe. So they they came out doing a pretty well on that end right as did a lot of military contractors um yes almost every midterm election we saw this in 2010 uh, reflected a level of buyer's remorse so it happened to reagan in 1982 and then the democrats picked up steam um it happened to bill clinton in 94 there's 
always kind of a backlash, right? So presidential historian Douglas Brinkley, he kind of nailed this whole backlash phenomenon when he said, we're a very impatient society. People want their problems solved very quickly. It's kind of a curse that the art of winning the presidency is to talk with grand rhetorical flourishes. But the act of being a president is to deliver on those promises. We're finding out that that's a lot tougher than candidates think. So after President Obama's campaigning, there were a bunch of Tea Party protests. There was health care reform anger and a bunch of counter protests. And some tended towards violence, which included shots being fired at a congressman's campaign headquarters, windows being smashed at offices around the country, a coffin placed on a lawnmaker's lawn, and just a bunch of hateful voicemail messages and threats that were left on Congress's phone lines. Disappointment and anger and a lot of disillusionment kind of ended up leading Republicans to a 63-seat pickup in the House. And they ended up taking control of the chamber, as well as a gain of six Senate seats. And this really rolled back a lot of the modern Democratic gains. In that particular election, Republicans won their greatest number of House seats since 1946, Republicans also took control of 29 of the 50 state governorships and gained 690 seats in state legislature. And this caused them to hold their greatest number since the 1928 elections. And this is why you make the argument all the time that we don't get to blame, the right does not get to blame the left because they have been really in massive power on both a a state and a federal level since this time. Yeah. And what have I, I they mean, done? That's, mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. It, well, okay. You made my point for it. I would <laughs> like to go back to, to uh, something that made me think about this though, mm-hmm. is the Clinton time, how contentious that was. Right. And, and I bring this up because this came up on the, on our Facebook group page in a discussion last night about compromise. The Clinton era, you had Gingrich who hated Clinton, you know, and Clinton was, you know, impeached. They started impeachment proceedings against him. And there was a lot of compromise Mm -hmm. in that time. Right. You know, to get anything done, Clinton had to compromise with the Republicans. They had a lot of power, but they did not have enough power to Clinton could stop anything they did. Mm -hmm. And Clinton couldn't do anything without them. Right. So there was a lot. There was, a, yeah, you, you come out, that's one of the times, last time we've had a balanced budget right. or a budget surplus. Right, because people are under pressure to to have some type of result, you know, and um, friction creates energy. And that's what people don't realize. That's why we don't need to have everything all the same. We need to, to have that friction to keep things moving. Um even if it's something that moves slowly and, and the gears grind slowly, they're grinding. When everything is the same, it's just there's going to be a reactive response and then it's just going to keep going back and forth. You know? Well, and I think what if you look at the difference, you had a Democrat in the White House and you had Gingrich and, and the Republicans had a lot of power. And they used that power to kind of you know, bend Clinton to their will to some degree, but Clinton got a lot of things that he wanted. Right. Now, since then, what you had 
is you had um, George Bush, who had six years of total control. Well, right? he actually, if you look at a lot of the things he signed domestic policy wise, he kind of had to fight his own party um, because he was more moderate than a lot of the the people that were um, in Congress and Senate at the time. I mean, he he like the criminal justice reform stuff that he put through was actually pretty radical. Okay, that's not the point I was making. Okay, well, <laughs> anyway, I'm just saying I I. I you know. No, what I'm saying is the worst possible thing you can have to me is complete control of all three houses. Mm-hmm. With Bush, he had to fight his own party somewhat, but he didn't have to deal with the Democrats much. Not at all. Obama's first two years, he pushed the ACA through without any input from the Republicans. The Republicans were just left out in the cold because Obama had complete control. Now, there was a little bit of balance when the Republicans came back. Right. But now we have complete control of, you know, you see complete the Republican control of all three houses. Nothing gets done. Right. All it does is cause reactive legislation once the other party gets power and and then it keeps changing back and forth. It's just everybody keeps reinventing the wheel according to their ideology instead of trying to have sustaining change that would be overall better for all of the country. Right. But you have to go back to the Clinton era to see how that worked to see compromise because when, and you know, I'll argue this forever that when you had Obama in office, you would think that there would have been compromise with Obama in office and the Republicans controlling the house. Mm -hmm. But what they decided to do was just shut things down. Right. And that was not work at all. The worst thing that they could have done. Right. I mean, if Clinton and Gingrich got things done, Obama and those guys should have been able to compromise somewhat. Right. Right. And the more that I the more that I research and I look back on that and I actually look at some of the well, just when I look at the academic research of that time, I I have to say, I really think so much of it, so much of the, certain strains within the Tea Party movement, not not in its inception, but when it kind of gained popularity and sort of became more mainstream, racism really rooted into it um, more than I would like to admit. And I really think that so much of the obstinance against President Obama really was race related more than many people on the right like to give any credence to I I really think it was and it makes my heart very very sad there was a lot of dog whistle politicking going on then it's just in the Obama time right even even by lawmakers who might not have even known exactly what they were doing I just the more I research the more grief I feel and how far um, the party has fallen because what when I became a Republican, I became a Republican for because I believed everybody was equal because um, I believed that everybody should have, you know, that, that everybody had the ability to be their best and that we shouldn't depend on a government to provide that for us. But, that you know, we should give everybody opportunities and we should be it shouldn't be something that's manufactured. I did not believe in um, social engineering and things like that. And that is not the Republican Party that I see today. It's not. Um, people can say there's not racism. They can say there's not anti-Semitism. There is. 
I mean, we are going back to there. There is. And um, it's very, very scary. And it is very, very sad. So let's well, change the subject a little bit and go to what our projections are. So here are my midterm projections for this year. And I'm not going to give numbers because I think pollsters are just, <laughs> I think there's a lot of people who aren't really giving all of their information. Um, I think a lot of people just aren't saying who they really want to vote for and things like that. I think that what we are going to see is an anti-incumbent trend. So according to Pew, back in 2014, 34% of voters didn't not, they did not want to see their member of Congress reelected. So I would guess that that has risen by at least 10%. So I think that people want to, you know, out with the old and with the new, which I think is kind of dangerous, but it just depends on who the incumbent is. Um, the other projection is I think it's going to be a lot closer than people think. I don't think there's going to be a wave. Um, and I think that there's going to be record lows in voters that identify as Republican. I, I hope that due to this, there's a rise in voters who call themselves independents. Um, I hope it really gives a lot of steam to in the independent movement. And I think that the uh, gubernatorial races, those are going to be the biggest indicators of what we're going to see in 2020. So those are my projections. I think Democrats are going to take it, but I think it's going to be a much smaller margin than what people think. Well, I think that history is on the, Democrats side um, a 24 seat swing it wouldn't be that unusual and although his approval ratings gone up a little bit it's it's in pretty it's not very good for a party facing midterms his approval rating so tradition would say that swing would be easy unfortunately in the Trump era all the things that we depended on as truth aren't truth i mean the the right. traditional things that occurred don't occur anymore so it's really hard to say if that swing is going to be that easy right. another thing is that democrats think that somehow a close loss is a victory right <laughs> um you have to you've seen my congressional map congressional district gerrymandering is hard to overcome i mean it's very tough so that's something they're going to be at. Now, on the Dem side, most of the seats that are true toss-ups where they're saying, you know, it's just too close to call on polling, the great, great majority, and I think one thing I read said 28 out of 30 true toss-up seats are held by Republicans. So if the Democrats, just, you know, the numbers are kind of, the math is in their favor, mm -hmm. but, you know, you could lose 27 close races. And still lose 27 races. Never forget, the Democrats rarely fail to blow a golden opportunity. Every time you say President Trump, think of Democratic failure. What I am betting on is that the Dems are going to take the House by a narrow margin. The next two years are going to see gridlock, tons of investigations, and subpoenas. So as, as terribly violent as these midterms have been... There's been massive violence in the past as well. And as usual, 
there is nothing new under the sun. Right. And that is all we have to say about that. Yes. Yes, it is. Uh, we want to thank all of you for taking the time out of your life to listen to us. You can find us on all the usual podcast platforms. You can also find us on Twitter at Rants and Reason and on Instagram as Rants and Reason Podcast. We'd really love to have you join our Rants and Reason Podcast Facebook group. And we, as usual, want to thank all of our moderators for what you do there. We really, really appreciate any positive reviews, um, word of mouth recommendations, and social media shares. And we want to thank everyone who takes the time to share the show. And this means you, Alicia. Well, and if you would like to support our show, you can find us on Patreon. You can be a Patreon supporter. Find us at Rants and Reason, as Rants and Reason. And we'd like to thank our Patreon supporters, Jennifer and Anon and Steven and Ben Fitton from They Walk Among Us and all the numerous things that Ben does and does very, very well. Jeremy Collins, Timmy from History Dubes, Austin, John Payne, Tony Carr. My buddy Tony Carr, Michelle Johns, Rudy, the Wonder Dog, the world's most dangerous canine. <laughs> and here is the part on Sprockets, Karen, <laughs> where I sit back and you tell me a tale. Yes, yes. Well, today I'm going to talk about one of your favorite people, Chuck. Tulsi Gabbard. Tulsi Gabbard, right. Yes. She is the, uh, do you need a minute? Do you need me to just say your name again? I'm just going to sit back in my chair, Karen. Tulsi Gabbard. <laughs> she, we have to post an article about Tulsi Gabbard. She's on very, the, very on interesting. Yeah. Um, she's a very unorthodox representative from Hawaii. And she looks like she should grace the cover of Fitness Magazine with her surfboard in her hand. But her experience could also land her on the cover of Military Today. And she refers to a very surprising person as her best friend in Congress. The man that she refers to as her best friend at work is none other than Trey Gowdy, the Benghazi bulldog who looks like he could be Matthew McConaughey's dorky brother and the deeply conservative, self-proclaimed committed Christian from South Carolina. So these two are such opposites. It, it kind of looks like they don't have a single thing in common, except maybe their initials. So, despite all this, the two of them sponsored three bills together. And they help each other in sponsoring other bipartisan bills. When Gowdy announced his retirement, he said it was Gabbard who first texted him with a wealth of kindness. After the horrific Charleston shooting, Gabbard, who is a devout Hindu, she actually flew to South Carolina with her husband to attend Christian services with Gowdy. Interestingly, you know, she's Hindu, so I don't know how much of a, of a compliment she found this, but Trey Gowdy told Gabbard that she was the most Christ-like person, one of the most Christ-like people he knew, which was like the highest compliment that Trey Gowdy could give. Um, so it's a pretty big deal. She's a real, she, I don't mean to interrupt. I normally don't in these things, but she's the first Hindu elected to Congress. Yes. Ever. Mm -hmm. And what was the other first? There's two firsts. First Samoan elected to Congress. Um, well, isn't she Polynesian? First person from American Samoa. Hmm. I thought she was mm -hmm. Polynesian. But anyway, um, when 
She's from beautiful land. <laughs> she is. She's pretty. She's pretty cool, and she's pretty. She's a very interesting person, and obviously a pretty good person. Um, the Baptist prosecutor from the South and the vegan veteran from Hawaii, enjoying the fruit of a very good working relationship. But not only that, a great friendship as well. If they can do it, we can too. Bye, everybody. Bye.